0: Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and this is Embedded. We will be back next week with some new episodes, but while you wait, we have something special in the feed this week. It's from the NPR podcast Rough Translation. If you don't know about Rough Translation, it's a show that, like ours, goes deep on a subject, but in a different way. Each episode, they take something that we are talking about in the U.S., like affirmative action or fake news or a Jane Austen novel— And then they dig into how those same things are being talked about in other parts of the world. Maybe that helps us change our perspective. The show is hosted by my friend, Gregory Warner, and he is here right now. Hey, Greg.
1: Hello. How are you?
0: I'm good. So um, we're going to play your first episode of your new season, which is out this week. Congrats. Thank you. Um, It's called The Apology Broker. What's it about? So I am the parent
1: of young children, so I do a lot of apology coaching. You know, say yes. sorry. I'll say, well, that's not a real sorry. Say it again. At least, you know, don't giggle. Right. I, you coach them on a sincere performance.
0: Oh, yeah. And look, look like you mean it.
1: <laughs> but then recently, you know, we live in an era of public apologies. Of course, big public apologies from men accused of sexual harassment. And because this is the world we live in now, there's also a lot of apology analysis. People will go online and highlight the words they thought worked and the words they thought didn't. Mm -hmm. And I realized that this role I play, knowing how to say sorry or not, knowing how an apology is supposed to sound, I may not be that good at that. I don't always know what's going to be judged sincere or not. And If giving a good apology is about finding the right combination of words, the English language is actually not very helpful Hmm. because we have this one word, this one all-purpose word, I'm sorry. It's equally usable if you're bumped on the subway or if you're on national television. Now compare this to a language like Japanese, right? If you google how to say sorry in Japanese, so in Japanese, we have so many way of saying I'm sorry. You're going to find dozens of YouTube videos explaining this kind of Complex vocabulary of apology. I'm going to teach you guys all that today. From the sorry to a friend, to the sorry to your mom, sorry to a customer, or or your teacher or your boss. Sorry, our company overstated billion dollars in profit.
2: This is really polite way.
1: And so on, and so on, up this kind of ladder of apologies. apologies. Oh, my God, it's so long. And then there are different levels of bows. You can bend more deeply or hold it for longer. And in this way, you can dial up or down the degree of responsibility and weight and seriousness and shame. And yet, when it comes to big public expressions of contrition, the Japanese have fared no better than their American counterparts.
0: And that's our show today. We're handing it over to Gregory Warner and Rook Translation.
1: Today, we're going to go behind the scenes on a sari that was so delicate it ended up needing its own apology broker. She had to translate one apology culture to another, and along the way, work out some pretty basic things about what a sari is, who it's for, and what makes it click.
2: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Discover Card. You check your email or social media all the time. But Discover asks, what about checking something as important as your credit score? Well, Discover makes it quick and easy with their credit scorecard, which is free for everyone, even if you're not a customer. See your FICO credit score and other important credit information. And once you know your score, you should check to see if your current credit card is the best fit for you. Learn more at discover.com slash credit scorecard. Limitations apply.
3: You're about us. Great to see you. Come on in, please. Our story really begins with this guy. My name is James T. Murphy.
1: 97 years old.
3: M-U-R-P-H-Y. Born in
1: 1920 in Livingston, Texas. I don't
3: know if I was a very good Texan. At
1: 18, he enlisted in the Army Air Corps get sent to the Philippines.
3: I couldn't wait to get a map where it says unexplored territory. Get two or three people, we're going to explore this. And we would. But just before his two-year stint is over... The Japanese have attacked the American naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii.
1: ...and the next day... Manila
3: has just
2: been bombed. In fact, right now it is
1: being bombed. It attacks Jim's base.
3: Their supply lines are cut off. There's four months of desperate heavy fighting. Food was gone. The ammunition was gone. We had no fight left in us. We were worn out and completely exhausted when we were overrun by the Japanese and captured.
1: 76,000 troops. It's the largest army under American command to ever surrender. They marched across the peninsula of Bataan.
3: Bataan Death March. The Bataan Death March. It was almost beyond description. We were continuously beaten, shot, and killed.
1: Of those who actually make it to the prisoner of war camp, even more will die of disease and starvation.
3: Our biggest job was to bury the dead. We wondered how, what we'd have to do to survive. But old Murph here, <laughs> he, he wasn't about to give up. Murphy makes a vow to himself. I don't know how logical I was, but I made rules that I would go by to try to survive. One rule, he's not gonna bow to the Japanese guards. I said I would bow to no man. Even when they beat him for not bowing. Sometimes I had to make out like I was a bowing. He tells himself, that wasn't a real bow. A little quickie.
1: <laughs> he also vows to do nothing to help the Japanese war effort. But two years into his capture, he's loaded onto a cargo ship sent to mainland Japan, to the snowy mountains of the North, And he's brought with 500 other prisoners to an old copper mine. And he's handed a pick. You work or you die. When Jim gets too sick to walk the two miles from the camp to the mine entrance, two other starving POWs are ordered to drag him there.
3: Yeah, so I was carried up the mountain several times. One man on each side. And by the time the three of you got up there, you had three workers... I couldn't get up. I
1: just can't understand that. Why would they want a sick worker who couldn't even walk in a mine?
3: Well, the people that were able to communicate with indicated that there was a contract to furnish so many able-bodied people to the mine each day. In this contract, it's between the Japanese military
1: and the company Mitsubishi. That's who owns this mine. Jim realizes he's been sold as labor, to the Mitsubishi Corporation. For 11 months and 7 days, he mines the copper that he knows will go to make Japanese bullets and submarines. Until the war ends, he's liberated, and Jim returns home to an America that is celebrated. happy people celebrate the end
3: of fighting, the dawn of peace. A lot of the stuff I haven't talked much about, and you probably detect that. It's all over. It's total victory. I put so much stuff way in the back of my mind.
1: Jim did not want to talk about what he went through with anybody. He didn't even want to brief the military about his experiences. That's how badly he wanted to put this chapter behind
3: him. I don't mean to be light on any of this stuff. The reason I smile sometimes, but if I don't smile, I'll cry.
1: (laughs) Jim's age has been called the silent generation, the generation that bucks up and doesn't talk about their feelings. Back then, neither side, not Japan and not America, wanted to talk about the bad things that were done in the war. And not until decades passed did something happen that would give this whole culture of silence around the war a kind of jolt.
3: President of the United States. It's
1: 1988, and President Ronald Reagan takes the stage with about a dozen Japanese Americans.
3: Members of Congress and distinguished guests, my fellow Americans, we gather here today to right a grave wrong.
1: He acknowledges the 120,000 Japanese Americans who were rounded up from their homes at the start of the war.
3: This action was taken without trial, without jury. It was based solely on race.
1: Reagan's apology is a huge success in America with the victims. And more than that, it becomes a catalyst for other apologies, a kind of template for how you say sorry for crimes in World War II.
3: I speak for members on all sides of the House today.
1: In Canada, six weeks later... In
3: offering to Japanese Canadians the formal... And sincere apology
1: in Germany, the government apologizes German corporations pay into a six billion dollar fund to compensate people they forced to labor in their factories. The twelve firms paying into the fund include Volkswagen, Daimler Chrysler. Jim Murphy is at home watching TV, seeing German companies apologizing for exactly what was done to him. I really felt that
3: a wrong had been done to me, and he's realizing, How much he wants to hear those words. I wanted someone to say, you're sorry and that you won't do it again. Or something like that. Just set aside those experiences.
1: Jim had tried to move on. Set those memories aside. But they kept coming back. Post-traumatic and all that. He'd have nightmares. Can't sleep at night. (laughs) And he thought, if only he could hear those words, I'm sorry. Then the past could stay past.
3: I think it would have, to be perfectly honest. And it wasn't just Jim who felt this way. On the March, on the death mark,
1: Nearly all of the American the POWs who March. came home alive from Japan had
4: stories. So, week, I think I weighed 80 pounds when we got up there.
1: Each year, they'd share their stories at an annual POW convention.
4: I saw men
3: dying at hundreds a day. Yeah, we couldn't run, we could hardly walk. And it didn't, they were there with the bandhead, you know, they poke you. Those are facts. they don't no myth.
1: So, especially after Ronald Reagan opened the floodgates of World War II apologies, they were writing op-eds and joining boycott campaigns to try to get Japan to say sorry, too. They owed us an apology. Every year, the POWs would meet, call for an apology. But from Japan,
3: there was only silence. They refused to admit publicly that they had done this to American forces. Finally, in 2009, the POWs decide
1: they're just going to hold one last convention in San Antonio. At this point, many members have died. There are more wheelchairs and oxygen masks. They don't want to dwindle away like that. So they make this all-out push for any Japanese official to show up. And the day before the meeting, they get a phone call. The Japanese ambassador is on a plane to Texas. He's going to speak to the POWs. And just to set the scene here, so this is all taking place in a hotel ballroom. You have this big, long banquet table. The ambassador stands behind it, one of those squat little podiums. The room is actually crammed with the reporters, and in the front row are all the POWs with their uniforms and their medals. Yeah, I was at that meeting. Jim's eyes are on the ambassador, who starts his speech.
3: We extend a heartfelt apology for our country having caused tremendous damage and suffering to many people including prisoners of wars.
1: Uh, to many people including prisoners of wars. Even though it's really only the POWs who are here listening to him. To
3: all those who have lost their lives in the war.
1: Wait, so now he is sorry for everyone who died in the war.
3: And after the war and their family members.
1: And with each phrase it's like he's inviting more and more victims into the room. Until by the end it's not clear who this apology is actually for or why.
3: Sufferings of many people, including prisoners of war,
2: should not be repeated.
1: When the ambassador finishes talking, half the POWs applaud yeah. and half of them turn their backs. Turn their backs and walked out. Which one were
3: you? I don't think I applauded. I stood up deference to his rank. You didn't really weren't really sure whether to believe him. You know, you hear, I apologize, I apologize, I apologize. You really don't know which one you're going to believe. You have to think a long time. The POWs would
1: never convene again, and many were ready to call it quits on this whole apology campaign. Jim Murphy wondered if any sorry could do what he hoped, if what had gone so wrong in that hotel ballroom could ever go right. But over the years that the POWs had been fighting for a sorry from Japan, they had acquired an unlikely ally.
5: This is the very special friend.
1: A Japanese woman. Named Kinwei Tokodome, living in California. She'd befriended some POWs.
5: This is Bob.
1: One POW even asked her to write his obituary.
5: Can you believe the baton this much survivor asked the Japanese person to write his own obituary? And I did that.
1: Kinwei was born in Japan just after the war. As a teenager in the 1960s, no one talked about the POWs or the war. Her high school history textbooks they stopped at nineteen thirty
5: mm-hmm. That's how I remember mm-hmm. and how did you feel
1: about that silence at the time?
5: Well, I didn't even recognize the silence or anything. You know, when you're like a teenager you you don't care about what my father did during the war.
1: Then she gets married at twenty six she follows her husband to America,
5: just a housewife.
1: She uses this phrase a lot to describe herself. We should add that she is a housewife who also taught herself English and put herself through college and a year of law school while raising two kids. And as the years passed and she looked at Japan with some more distance, that silence she'd grown up with, it started to feel ugly.
5: Maybe you don't know, but at the time, there was a strange phenomenon in Japan, anti-Semitic books with the bestseller.
1: Japan was not only denying its own atrocities, but now Germany's as well.
5: Not a fringe publication, but the major publication also ran an article like, a Holocaust never happened. And I was kind of upset, so I decided to write a book.
1: When Kinway says that she was kind of upset, so she decided to write a book, what she means is that she spent the next year crisscrossing the country on her own dime to interview Holocaust survivors and translate their words into Japanese. And that book started her writing other magazine articles, which is how she happens to hear, for the first time, the story of the POWs in Japan. She tells me about her very first time meeting a POW. His name was Lester Tenney. She sat on his back porch in San Diego. His wife brought them lemonade. And she wondered how he would react to this visit from a Japanese freelance journalist.
5: Lester always told me when I first met, oh, by the way, you know, I already forgave all the Japanese people. Because not forgiving them is only making me an unhappy person. Forgiving them is a gift that he gave to himself.
1: Kinwei had grown up in the silence around the war, as if silence protected Japan from a great shame. When Mitsubishi was sued for its treatment of POWs, lawyers for the company stood up in Japanese court and said that just to admit the history of forced labor would be to saddle Japan with a, quote, mistaken burden of the soul for hundreds of years. Here in California, on Lester's back porch, Kinway felt so far away from all that. She felt like the POWs were ready to forgive if only the Japanese would be willing
5: to talk about what happened. The chance for apology is the gift that these POWs could give to the Japanese people. Where's the shame? No. Well, if there is any cultural or language gap that I really want to, you know, bridge, is this.
1: The sorry that Lester wanted to hear was not a sorry soaked in shame. It was more about talking it out and helping both sides move on. So
5: I often said to some of my friends in Japan, what I'm doing is helping these POWs help Japanese and company feel good about themselves, finally.
1: Lester and the other POWs wanted to feel these good, sorry vibes, not just from the official corners of the Japanese government, but also from the Japanese companies that had actually forced them to labor. So in 2014, Kinway was sitting in front of her laptop thinking, how is she going to get this conversation started? And something pretty ordinary led to something remarkable. The ordinary thing is that Kinway's ancient laptop finally died. She bought a new one. And when she booted it up and looked at the new screen, she found herself typing a letter.
5: This is the moment that I really, really want to make a difference. Only one person, housewife.
1: She writes directly to 14 Japanese companies that had used POW labor in their mines and their shipyards and their chemical plants. She doesn't tell them that she is trying to cross a cultural language gap. She doesn't explicitly say that she's trying to move an apology away from shame and toward forgiveness and good feeling. Instead, she writes, We cannot erase the past, but we can face it honestly and try to deepen further the friendship that American and Japanese people have successfully built by learning together even a painful chapter of our shared history. And she mails this off. And she gets a phone call.
5: The telephone call I received is...
1: From Mitsubishi Materials.
5: We would like to discuss the apology issue if you would be kind enough to come visit us.
1: That apology that the POWs have been asking for for 70 years? They want to discuss it. The same company that once said in court that admitting forced labor would saddle Japan with a centuries-long burden of the soul. After the break, their unusual proposal.
2: Proposal. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Kumon. In Kumon, kids complete work daily to build a strong foundation in math and reading. Preschoolers become kindergarten ready, while older kids develop better study habits, increase mental math skills, and improve their reading comprehension. Kumon kids become critical thinkers and problem solvers while developing a passion for learning. Kumon, where smart kids get smarter. Visit kumon.com. Support also comes from NPR sponsor, Indeed. If you're hiring with Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your short list of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started at indeed.com nprpodcast NPR podcast.
1: I'm Gregory Warner. We're back with Rough Translation. When Kinway gets that phone call from Mitsubishi, she takes the high-speed rail down to Tokyo and finds herself in a conference room with three men. All men.
5: All men. Mm -hmm.
1: Are they dressed in suits?
5: Of course. (laughs) Of course. Are you
1: dressed in a suit?
5: Um, not too formal, but at least decent looking.
1: One of the suits closes the door. They all sit down.
5: These three gentlemen, they want to make sure that if they were to issue an apology, it would be accepted.
1: So how did that work? They said...
5: Well, of course, in a very polite Japanese way, asking me, do you think the POW will accept if our company apologizes?
1: Kinway listens to this, and she's trying to digest what exactly they're telling her. Because if you are someone who's ever said sorry, or had sorry said to you, you know that the way it works is that first the apologizer speaks, and then the other one accepts it. Or doesn't accept it. That's their choice. What Mitsubishi is asking for is that the acceptance be guaranteed in advance before an apology is even drafted. It feels less like contrition, more like a contract, like having your mortgage pre-approved. Now, there was a reason that the men in suits were so gun-shy about committing to this apology.
4: Japan had been burned before, They have made apologies over and over and over again, and those apologies don't work very well. This is Professor
1: Yamazaki. Jane
4: Yamazaki.
1: She's retired now, but she wrote a whole book about Japan's failed apologies for World War II crimes. You know, there's always something wrong with it. Have they had this experience more than once or twice?
4: Every time. Oh my god. That's why they they keep making these apologies over and over again. They're never enough.
1: Japan actually had apologized for its actions in World War II. And if you remember those YouTube videos on how to say sorry, that whole taxonomy of responsibility
4: and shame, that had only made things worse. Yes. In the early Japanese apology, the words that was used was usually ikan or makoto ni ikan, true regret, I regret truly.
1: True regret, that was seen as way too bureaucratic, too neutral, that was ditched and replaced. With hansei,
4: it means to reflect on and sort of to criticize. So when this word hansei was used, people, they said, ah, they just, they're going to reflect on their wrongs. But in Japan, whenever you do something wrong... As a child, or, you know, you're told very seriously, reflect on your actions. It doesn't just mean think about it. It means take it to heart.
1: And so these apologies tried to clarify that this was really... From the heart. From the heart. The, the, my deepest heart. <laughs> this also got Japan in trouble. In 1990, the Emperor of Japan had drafted several versions of an apology to the Koreans. And
4: one of these versions... It had him saying some an expression that sort of means, "I'm sorry from the bottom of my heart." And the Korean newspaper had a cartoon where they showed Mount Fuji and these notes were coming out of Mount Fuji like a singing notes. They said that's just Emperor Akihito practicing his apology. Those words sounded like, oh, my heart is aching. was the way these words were coming out.
1: In Japan, each of these rejected saris provoked anger and frustration. There were calls for a moratorium on World War II apologies. No more saris. So you can see why when Mitsubishi received Kinwei's gracious request for a heartfelt apology its board members had to think twice. Hello, Gregory. One of those board members was... Yukio Okamoto. I've heard people call him the Henry Kissinger of Japan, only younger, he's 72. He's a guy who has the ear of prime ministers. He's a regular commentator
6: on TV. And we were not sure... And he wondered... If the American victims will really accept our apology emotionally and sincerely or not. Could this apology be any different? Otherwise we will have to be met with further criticism. So, of course, Japanese companies being conservative was a bit
1: uh, hesitant. If one company apologizes and it does not go well, then all the companies could look bad.
6: You know, Japanese society, and especially the business community, is like uh, a gigantic fleet. Individual ship cannot make uh, individual turns freely.
1: So the only way it seemed to him that Mitsubishi could take this risk is if they had that guarantee that the apology would be accepted.
5: I let them know. I I happen to know the one available of POW who were forced to work at Mitsubishi Mines. James T. Murphy. So he should be the one who accepts. M-U-R-P-H-Y. And the company Mitsubishi material said, so Mr. Murphy will accept it, right?
1: Kinway doesn't tell Mitsubishi that Jim will accept it. But she does tell them, don't worry, Jim Murphy's a very forgiving person. He's
5: such a gentleman, and he never instilled any bitter feeling in their children.
1: Why is it important that he didn't instill bitterness in his children? For Mitsubishi
6: to hear that.
5: I I think that would assure them that they are dealing with a very decent human being.
6: Ms. Tokudome was uh, instrumental. She really did a good job in persuading us that uh, our good will be met with the equal amount of goodwill by the American side.
1: Kinway was right about one thing: Jim is
3: a forgiving person. Cause I really believe that you could get eaten up. I've seen people like. Eaten up with hatred. When she wrote him, he wrote her
1: right back saying what he required in an apology, which was everything he did not hear from the ambassador.
5: He sent me an email very helpful. Well, I can accept the apology if it includes three things
3: I did it. I'm sorry I did it. I will not do it again. What else can you say?
1: But what Kinway did not know was that Jim's own reasons for wanting an apology had shifted if in the beginning he'd wanted to hear an apology so he could put the past behind him, set those hard memories aside. Now, he was in his ninth
3: decade. I'm sorry because uh, closure means so much to somebody, but uh, I don't want closure.
1: (laughs) What he mostly felt now was the weight, the weight of being the last POW who had worked in the Mitsubishi mines, who was alive and well enough to travel. The last POW who could legitimately accept an apology.
3: What were you worried that the apology? I wouldn't? was worried that the apology would not satisfy all the people I was representing. And you knew
1: that some of the POWs who died would never have accepted it. Yes,
3: yes. Did that? Did that trouble you? A it did. It did.
1: Both sides were taking a risk going forward with this apology. If Mitsubishi hit the wrong note, there could be blowback.
5: So they really want assurance from me.
1: But Jim felt his burden, his duty to the dead, not to accept an apology
5: sight unseen. He said something to the effect, I would consider the apology statement, and that was not good enough for the Mitsubishi.
1: Kinway is going back and forth between these two men. It's a kind of... Like some kind of apology broker.
5: Which comes first kind of a situation.
1: She finally gets Mitsubishi's apology in writing, but... In Japanese. It's in Japanese. And there's a big warning on this email. For internal company use only. Kinway thinks,
5: well... I can translate the two-page... She could translate it. Of course. And send it to Jim. For a couple of hours I could do that. Yeah. But I didn't want to do that because... I really didn't want to create the situation that what Jim read with my translation somehow different from the actual version.
1: She doesn't want to send Jim something now to get a yes that he might later regret. So she tells him, look, I have read this apology. It's good. It's what you want.
5: I thought this is perfect, very sincere. This will be accepted by Jim. But Jim being Jim... (laughs) he had to read entire statement in English.
1: It's days before the apology ceremony is supposed to happen in Los Angeles, not far from Jim's home, and Mitsubishi still does not have their guarantee.
5: I was I was frustrated.
1: She writes this anguished email at six thirty in the morning to Jim's son. It
5: was happening just a few days time space.
1: Tries to pressure him, blaming Jim for not trusting her.
5: But looking back, I, I regret I shouldn't have taken that position.
1: Jim never sees that angry email. His son never shows it to him. Because Jim has already had a change of heart.
3: I thought we had this one chance. He writes Kinway that he
1: feels it his duty to see this through.
5: Even before reading the English translation.
3: To be there at the apology ceremony. I often don't feel well, well enough to travel. But I said I will be there that Sunday no matter what.
1: The way Jim saw it, Kinway had just worked so hard for this to happen. And he didn't want to be the guy who stood in the way of history. And so that Sunday morning, Jim gets dressed in his gray suit and red tie. He gets in his son's car with his wife, Nancy. In his pocket are two sheets of paper typed with some carefully unsentimental sentences. One of them reads that this apology meets all the criteria necessary to satisfy the elements of an acceptable apology. It's like he's defending his decision to show up. Jim and his family arrive at the Museum of Tolerance at the Simon Wiesenthal Center. They've agreed to host this ceremony. He walks into this giant lobby with a spiral ramp up like the Guggenheim. And all these reporters are milling about. This is a huge deal. But instead of going into the room with all the reporters, he led down this little hallway to an elevator bank, taken up to the fourth floor, to a private room. Jim wasn't expecting any of this. Inside the room, he finds another POW he knows, Lester Tenney, also some family members of POWs. There are the Mitsubishi executives, including Yukio Komoto. But what Jim does not see are any reporters. We only have tape of this because the daughter of a POW had a camera rolling. First, uh, Mitsubishi senior executive Hikari Kimura stands up to speak. And he talks about James Murphy, the other POWs, what they suffered, what they admitted. Jim is listening to these words through an interpreter. He's hearing all the details of what they went through.
3: Uh, without sufficient uh, food, water, medical treatment, sanitation. It's so wonderfully specific. And uh, the harsh life in the mines. What else could I say? You know. The Mitsubishi
1: executive says, When I understand the sad truth of the matter, I feel a pained sense of ethical responsibility as a fellow human being. As a representative of Mitsubishi Materials, I apologize to you deeply. And then Jim watches as all seven Mitsubishi executives in the room together stand up and bow at the waist. The bow lasts 14 seconds.
3: They went through the most pronounced gyrations of offering an apology that I've ever seen. They were almost crawling up on the table. And they said there was a, the top way of performing, very highest level of performing an apology. Do you, have you heard of that? I just know that each one has more and more shame. That's so yeah, the top wasn't. Too much for me. <laughs> I mean,
1: yeah, you deserved it.
3: To me, it may seem more sincere. They were almost embarrassing. I wasn't expecting so much uh, feeling to be put into it.
1: Was the Mitsubishi one the first time you really were sure this
3: is a sincere apology? Yes, it was.
1: This was not only the first ever apology by a Japanese company to an American POW. More than that, it was also one of Japan's least controversial apologies for any World War II crime. A model for how Japan might say sorry once and well and not have to repeat themselves. And so the weird thing about this apology was how few people got to see it. The tape you just heard has never been aired. There were no reporters allowed in the room. Every news report about this apology, and it made headlines around the world, begins after this apology has actually happened. You see Jim and the Mitsubishi executives posing together, shaking hands. There are speeches.
3: When it's Jim's turn to speak, he
1: veers off script. He does not say those dutiful sentences that this satisfies the criteria of a proper apology.
3: It's a real pleasure to have so many turn out for this event. This happened to be the first time that we've heard those words, and they really touch you at the heart. So it's my high honor to accept the apology from the Japanese delegation. Jim looks out at the crowd, and he makes a kind
1: of wish for the future.
3: We hope to extend Mr. gracious, coming forward at this time.
1: He hopes, he says, that other Japanese companies will follow Mitsubishi's example.
3: All the other mines and factories who employed American POWs against their will.
1: Kinway would write letters to those other companies. She would tell them, look at this apology that Mitsubishi made, look how well it went.
5: Six months, one year. I was hopeful maybe some other major one would come forward.
1: Maybe another company would apologize and another and another. She knew that Japanese companies often move as a fleet.
5: But it didn't happen. So I decided well, that's it. They have to live with with the legacy of not coming forward.
1: We want these two different things from a public apology. We wanted to spark a public conversation. We gather here today to right a grave wrong. To get us all talking about something that we're not talking enough about. But we also wanted to feel like a real apology, intimate and heartfelt and sincere. Yukio Kamoto told me that in order to make that apology feel sincere, they had to be in that side room in LA, away from the press.
6: Um, well, for instance, can we shed our tears to TV cameras? I mean, that's a bit of an artificial thing, don't you think? We wanted to be free individuals.
1: Mitsubishi never released any official text of this apology in Japanese, only in English. The company told me it did not want to fuel blowback from Japanese critics. And Kinway agreed. She said she wanted to keep the focus on the POWs, not to muddy this moment with a lot of Japanese politics. But without all that blowback and shrill debate, this apology did not start a cascade of other apologies. It was a one-off. And it kind of gets to a basic conundrum about public apologies, whether you're talking about a copper mine in 1944 or a comedian's hotel room in 2004. Who are these public expressions of sorry actually for? Are they mostly for the people who were harmed, for their closure, their peace of mind, Or are they in some way for the rest of us? I asked Jim, did you want the apology, in a sense, because you needed to hear it? Or did you want the apology because Japan needed to hear it?
3: I could live without it. But I wanted to accept it. And this might be bogging your mind because I wanted to start a better world for people. I know that's hard to believe, but uh, that's what I really feel that the world would feel better for everyone to apologize. We can try, we can keep trying.
0: That was Gregory Warner, host of Rough Translation. Embedded will be back next week with new episodes. You can find more Rough Translation at npr.org slash roughtranslation. We will also link to the show on Twitter at NPR Embedded.
1: Today's show was produced by Jess Jang and edited and scored by Marianne McCune. Music by John Ellis. Thanks to Jan Thompson for letting us use footage from that private apology ceremony. Her documentary about the POW experience is called Never the Same, Archival interviews of the POWs by Kinway Tokodome, and the voices you heard were Robert Brown, Carlos Montoya, Abby Abraham, Lester Tenney, and Hap Halloran. I first learned about this story from Pernil Rudland. She blogs at RudlandConsulting.com. We had a lot of help with this episode. Thanks to William Underwood, Jeffrey Helmreich, Ayogata, Gata, Lise Hugh, and Dan Charles. Translations by Aika Masabuchi, and editorial feedback from Karen Duffin, Masato Hasagawa, Kenny Malone, Nick Fountain, Robert Smith, Robert Crawwich, Sana Krasikov, Stuart Symington. Lauren Wheeler, and Sally Helm. The Rough Translation advisory team is Anya Grunman, Matil Piard, and Neil Carruth. Fact-checking by Sarah Knight, mastering by Natasha Branch, and Andy Huther. I'm Gregory Warner. Thank you to Kelly and to Chris Benderev for letting me hang out with the Embedded fans. And back next week with more episodes of Embedded.